This is the Beyond the Studio podcast, and you're listening to Beyond the Studio Season 3, East Coast Edition. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll have honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. If you find value in listening to these conversations, please consider leaving us a rating and a review or sharing some of your favorite episodes with your creative community. It's the easiest way to show us some love and help others find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Hi, it's Nicole here, and I'm so excited to tell you more about one of my favorite tools beyond the studio, Artwork Archive. I've been using Artwork Archive for years now, and it's been completely game-changing for me and the way I organize and keep track of my work. Artwork Archive is an all-in-one platform to run and organize your art career. It helps you catalog your artwork online, create an online portfolio of your work, send professional polished PDF reports within seconds, and so much more. Before Artwork Archive, I was manually updating PDFs with pricing or new images every time somebody reached out expressing interest in my paintings. It was tedious and time-consuming, and I could never remember which versions I'd sent out to which collectors or consultants. It is so easy now for me to share images of newly available work, to pull up records of all my sales, and to quickly at a glance see where my work is located around the world. If you're serious about growing a sustainable art career, then you need a platform like Artwork Archive to track and manage your work. It's the most cost-effective way to run a professional art career. You can get started for under $5 a month with our exclusive discount. Head to www.artworkarchive.com beyond. Before we get started with today's episode, we wanted to pop in to announce the winner of our giveaway. Burr, 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 burr. That's where the <laughs> ham horn comes in. We are giving it away to Catsamp, K-A-T-S-A-M-P, and Nicole is going to read this excellent review. Oh my gosh, thank you so much, Catsamp. This almost made us cry. We were so touched um, by your review left on Apple Podcast. They say, ever since stumbling upon this podcast, it has been woven into my weekly routine. This is the podcast I have needed. It provides incredible insight on the reality of being a full-time artist. This podcast teaches you everything you wish you learned in college while getting that art degree. The interviews with other working artists are insightful and genuine, a great way to discover new artists and learn along the way. This podcast has been pure gold. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. We are so grateful for everyone that submits reviews and that provides feedback and and reaches out to us to let us know how you're listening and learning with us. We are so unbelievably grateful to be a part of this journey with you, and we are so grateful when you take the time to let us know. So CatSamp, check your email uh, or send us an email at beyondthestudiopodcast at gmail.com. We have also included your name in our email newsletter that went out with today's episode release and uh, claim your free copy of The Death of the Artist by our most recent podcast guest, William Derezowitz. And we hope you enjoy this book. And now we're going to hop into the episode. All right. On today's episode of Beyond the Studio, we are talking with artist Max Colby, who is based in New York. Max, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. And would you tell us a little bit about yourself, your work, your background, um, let the listeners know a little bit about who you are and where where you come from? 
Sure. So I am in New York. I'm in Queens. I live and work in Queens. Would you like a kind of like full bio or? Yeah, okay. So my background and training is from the School of the Museum of Fine Arts and Tufts University in Boston, which I graduated with a BFA from in 2012. I've been in New York since. And my practice has fluctuated over the years, but over the last three years that I've been based in Queens, I've had a primary focus in textile and fiber-based work, sculptural, two-dimensional, and can go into more details about each of those bodies of work, but I am, you know, focused on material histories as they relate to historic construction of gender, sexuality, class, race, um, and those intersections with uh, aesthetics, art history. Uh, So those are some ideas that I explore in my practice and um, can expand upon those, you know, by body of work as well. And did you always know that art was something that you wanted to pursue as a young person? Was this something that you discovered early in life? Or at what point did you really, you know, make that commitment to um, continue this as a a possible life path? Well, I always was interested in art as well as music since I was a child. I always took extra courses, uh, especially over the summer after school. I was one of those kids that would stay at school until six or seven and was always in summer programs. So they were always art related for the most part. Now, by the time I got into high school, I was actually much more invested in my training as a classical cellist. And uh, visual practice kind of re-entered the picture in about the middle of high school. And so I kind of went back and forth between the two of them for those remaining high school years. And what ended up kind of clinching focusing in visual arts was that at the end of my time in high school, I won a few national awards for the work that I was doing. It was mostly um, mixed media work. I was doing a lot of printmaking and some sculptural work as well. And so those awards and that recognition really helped propel me into focusing on visual arts through an undergraduate degree. And so that momentum just kept going. I would often revisit classical music, but I always had this kind of complicated relationship with it. There was a really stark difference between a kind of prodigious element to classical training that my my kind of sporadic involvement what didn't lend itself to and visual arts I could kind of more freely explore it so anyway my practice is really really kind of ridden a roller coaster since then I'm curious to know what were some of the earliest experiences, either as an undergraduate student or postgraduate, that stand out to you? You know, some of those formative experiences that might have impacted your work or your decision whether or not to stay in in Boston, was it, where you studied um, for undergrad? Sure. While I was in undergrad at Boston, um, I should also mention that the format of the program I was in was really critical for me in that 
the School of the Museum of Fine Arts did not have majors programs. It was pretty self-directed. Um, we had review boards versus uh, grading process. And the focus was interdisciplinary. And so that was really important for my practice because I was interested in and continue to be in a lot of different things. And we can go into more of this later, but my work really changes drastically over time. And a big part of my practice is constantly evolving <clears throat> the ways in which I work. So I will teach myself various techniques and processes before I start a new body of work. And that's something that was really fostered in my undergraduate program through its format. Aside from that, there were certainly some significant experiences uh, that happened. I did a couple of, I did one international residency while I was there in Belgium at a printmaking facility called Franz Maserville. And it was an exchange program facilitated between the print and paper department at my school, Cranbrook, and I don't remember the name of the academy in Belgium, but uh, that was a very formative experience in terms of expanding my understanding of artistic practice and working with other artists outside of an academic environment, and as well as a trip to Cuba for the biennial in 2012, <clears throat> which was facilitated through the Board of Governors at the school, that I was also, um, I was also involved um, politically at the school as well. So, you know, those were two pretty significant experiences that helped me really understand practice and dialogue and engagement outside of kind of my studio or something like this, which was, a, you know, is a, a big focus in, a, in any undergraduate program. Yeah, I really appreciate um, you talking about being a multidisciplinary artist, because I think a lot of times young artists feel like they have to hone in on one thing and really focus on finding their niche or finding, you know, just or home in, hone in, focus on this one skill. And I think oftentimes being an artist is so much about kind of following the flow of your inspiration of, of what you want to try to experiment with. Um, can you talk a little bit about the like practical side of sort of moving back and forth between different methods of work as far as like how you manage your time around that or kind of, I guess, a little bit more of the behind the scenes parts? Sure. A kind of foundational pillar in my practice, I should say in how I approach my practice, is is really through learning and growing uh, rather than achieving some type of proficiency or perfection. Mm -hmm. So my work has really evolved over the years. I'm trained as a paper maker, really, and have a lot of technical and historical skills in that realm. But my work has really changed since that training and it's changed in a way that's catered to the conversations that I'm looking to have with the work and to engage others in through the work and what started to happen was I was really gravitating towards needlework maybe eight years ago 
And I was looking at identity construction, gender construction, sexuality construction through an his, through a historic lens, and aesthetics were aesthetics and art history were a pretty direct way for me to do that since they were part of my training and and needlework and cruel needlework at the time was very relevant for me because it has a such such a kind of rich technical and historical background but also a very contentious and problematic one and mm-hmm. so i would engage with some historical patterns and references and i would modify them into a kind of contemporary conversation as well. So that was one of the first instances where I learned something relatively roughly to suit a conversation or a body of work that I was interested in engaging with. So that's a pretty uh, kind of standard model or way of thinking, way of approaching, working that I have. You know, for instance, I, I started working on another series of embroideries about three years ago, which had an accompanying set of paintings, which were studies. I'm not a painter. I kind of taught myself how to work with gouache over the years. And mm-hmm. I don't know, I think they're probably technically all right or good or whatever. Um, it's not really so much of the focus, but with practice and with consideration over the body of work, it certainly develops. I tend to also work in these in series that take me anywhere from one to two years to complete. So I'll really kind of hammer an idea mm-hmm. or a body of work until that space for challenges and growth is kind of tapped and I'll move on to something else. So I moved from those embroideries and paintings to sculptures where I was teaching myself how to bead and how to make kind of structural semi-soft sculptures towards wall pieces where I was working with a lot of upholstery and never upholstered before, looking through all kinds of technical and historical references for upholstery Mm -hmm. and how to modify it to work with the way I was trying to visually communicate and then, and so on and so on. I'm always so inspired by the ways that artists are just the overall spirit of diving into whether, you know, new materials, new processes. I think this extends beyond the, you know, their practice more often than not um, and really spills over into other aspects of of their lives, too. But just this, um, you know, ability to figure things out as they go along and really the the drive to invent and to, you know, try new things. And so I appreciate hearing a little bit about your studio process and can, you know, imagine the ways that that has, you know, spilled over into other areas of your life. And I think something we're always interested in in talking with artists about is, is all of that behind the scenes and really understanding, you know, who they are and how they're, um, how they've been building their lives and careers in addition to their studio practice. But that's, you know, at the heart of it always. And so often it feels like that approach, you know, to their studio work is, you know, kind of one in the same with their, just their sort of life, you know, philosophy or approach to their life as a whole. And do you, do you find that as well? Do you feel like that's a sort of similar approach you take with 
just diving into new experiences or trying, you know, trying and figuring things out, would you say you have, or what kind of attitude would you bring to, um, you know, your work outside of the studio? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I can say that one of the primary connections between personal attitudes or approaches and the studio's attitudes and approaches is that is a kind of spiritual or a spiritual connection or kind of making of sanctuary. That's a big element of my practice is to be there's there's never going to be a space in which I myself can be completely disconnected from the work. And so in that way, you know, work is always political. But then there's another there's another uh, side to that where the pursuit of challenge and growth and the kind of acceptance of unexpected outcomes, unexpected directions, navigation is a very kind of spiritual approach in many ways. And then, you know, the studio as environment, as sanctuary is really important to me. And, you know, that's those attitudes certainly carry over in terms in my personal life in terms of accepting change moving with change and adjusting and kind of leaving a lot of room open to kind of take myself out of the picture. So that's probably one of the biggest connections. Otherwise, in terms of personality traits, I mean, I'm a very particular, organized, Mm -hmm. tidy person. And the studio reflects that in a lot of ways, too. Everything is organized in plastic bags, by type and color, in plastic bins, by category, or by what kind of work I might be, or what kind of, um, what work I might be using that material on. And then those get cycled around in terms of how uh, accessible they are to me in the studio, in terms of, like, what's a priority for me to be using. Um, I'll store things for a long period of time and maybe use that material one or two years later when I'm able to somehow have a more developed conversation with it. That's something that carries over into my personal life as well. I mean, very, just very organized and very particular. I wanted to ask you a little bit earlier, too, if you had had models growing up of other working artists. It sounds like this was something that was really a part of your life early on and that um, you had these experiences that were sort of propelling you forward into pursuing this. But as far as, you know, what it might have looked like to really, you know, build a a life as an artist uh, full time or what, you know, it meant to be a working artist, I'm, I'm curious if you you know, had examples of that, or if that was also something that, you know, you kind of developed later on? I definitely had them growing up. There weren't a lot of them, but there were some of them. A handful of my dad's friends were, you know, working artists or full-time artists, or at least they had a long-term commitment to a practice. So there were some connections in that way, some family friends, where I could see long-term commitment. And then of course, 
professors in college who were working artists and primarily teaching outside of their practice and those were their their two kind of primary focuses so you know those were definitely some references for me but I didn't grow up in the art world or with you know regular kind of working middle class midwestern family and uh, so a lot of what I've done over the last few years has been really driven by my own ambition and need to connect with my practice and need to connect with others through my practice. I've been full-time in the studio for three years and there was maybe a period of a year before I jumped that hurdle where I was very focused in developing new work, meaning I would make work on both of my days off from my full-time job and then dedicate the evenings after my full-time job to lectures or panel discussions or going to exhibitions, openings, getting to meet people, um, and so on. But eventually, and I, I'm young, I'm 30, but I, I, being in New York and in the, the art world here, I feel like I'm old in, in some ways in terms of yeah. the place I'm in in my career there are lots of young people that are getting out of undergrad or graduate school when they're like 24 25 years old and having you know really great exhibitions or careers or whatever and I took longer than that I had many years after graduating school to really re-engage with my practice in a really significant way. And by the time I got there, I really had a need to be connected to it all the time. And so many of the ways that I approach my work outside of making it in the studio is is really out of necessity to maintain this kind of constant attention to it and time with it. That's another kind of way that kind of sanctuary or spiritual kind of line comes in. That leads me to another question. We have been asking a lot of artists for these seasons, which are kind of loosely geographically based um, about the role of place or location within their their making, their life, you know, their ability to find community or opportunities. Although I have to say this year has me reevaluating that a little bit as mm. it seems like, you know, our ideas of place or maybe even the importance of that has sort of been turned upside down. But um, I am curious to hear, uh, you know, a little bit about your relationship with with New York or with where you are in particular, you know, whether that's related to your your studio practice or, you know, some of that dynamic within the art world you uh, described or just, you know, the ability to find find opportunity or community for your work. Well, I feel like on the in the, the kind of foundational aspect, I have a really generic experience in that there's so much accessibility in New York and so it makes sense for me in a lot of ways to be based here and that's certainly still the case even today it's it's still the case for me 
And, you know, that's looked different over time. I live in Queens. I'm in Ridgewood. I'm in a pretty accessible part of Ridgewood, but it's also really the brink of this kind of mix of suburban urban. And I need a lot of that. I mean, New York is home to me for many reasons, but the accessibility of the kind of commercial and nonprofit art sectors is really necessary for me to be able to continue to do the things I need to do to be full-time in the studio and connect with the work and develop it in that way. But I simultaneously need a lot of disconnection from that because it's not always my favorite part of the job. And I really enjoy being in a a neighborhood. I can walk a few blocks to my studio. I don't have to engage with too much. It's the city, obviously, but for the most part, you know, it's the same handful of neighborhood businesses that I go to or work with as shippers or something like that. I've tried to find this balance where I can have the least complicated experience in terms of my living situation in the city while still being very thoroughly connected and engaged here as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. It feels like, you know, a lot of people find their own pocket within whatever whatever scale of, you know, city they're living in. And I know that's been my experience too, living in San Francisco, which is, you know, the Bay Area is much larger, but San Francisco as a city is actually not that big. But even within that, you know, I find that I'm frequenting my own kind of pocket of the neighborhood that I live in and frequenting the same businesses. So you kind of develop your own rhythm and routine, even within, you know, a really, really dense metropolitan area. I wanted to also ask you about the transition in your work life and uh, time in the studio over the years. Uh, It sounds like, I mean, especially early on, there was a lot of uh, hustle involved in working full time, working in your studio on the weekends, you know, being really proactive about um, engaging outside of that with, um, you know, with the art world and just from hearing you talk a little bit about your time currently, it seems like more of that is devoted to the studio. So I wondered if you'd be willing to share just, you know, what that has looked like for you over the years. How are you still, uh, you know, working other jobs to support your studio practice? Is your practice what is supporting you now? What's that looked like for you? Sure. So I can say that for the first few years I lived here, I didn't really engage too much at all. I'd make work a little bit here and there in my apartment. And sometimes I'd see shows or go to museums, but I wasn't really tapped into, you know, very, very much outside of what I was doing as a job. And as that dynamic started to shift, I started to redirect my time outside of my job towards places and events that would really that were really enriching so I went to a lot of like lectures and panel discussions at museums or at galleries and 
I was doing a lot of reading and a lot of research and really making it a point to go and see a lot of exhibitions and see what people were working on and engage in a totally new way with other artists in the community. And so that was a big priority outside of making my work. And I continue to do that a lot. Not so much over the last eight or nine months, but yeah. <laughs> uh, for the last few years, yeah, I make it a regular, uh, you know, a point of regularly attending those kinds of events and happenings, mainly because I find them interesting or inspiring or enriching or fun. But it's also a way for me to engage with other working artists and people that are interested in similar things uh, to me and kind of build new relationships and, you know, out of that new relationships to the work. So the way I structure my time, well, being full-time in the studio for me has been largely... I just command. <laughs> so when I left a job uh, three years ago, it was just a big risk. And it was just a big kind of command that I made of, you know, my work and where I thought it was and my relationship to it and others' relationship to it. So still, that's something that I have to do every single day. So, you know, a lot of where that comes from is a really deep, thorough, ongoing conversation with myself about like, where is the work really? Where have I, you know, how have I developed over the last few years? What is the point that the work really is at? And how much do I believe in the work regardless of what other people or programs are telling me and then really running with that and doing the necessary things to maintain that. So if that means in the fall going to six events a week, then that's what I'll do. So I'm pretty, I don't want to say for some reason the word narrow is coming up, but it's kind of like I've got this tunnel in that respect. And, you know, another thing I should say, which I feel is relevant to the topic, is a lot of artists, myself included, you know, get guidance from professionals in the field who are very well respected. And they say, well, if the curator, if somebody asks you to do something, you know, you should just say yes. I don't believe in that. If it's not the right fit to move the work in the context that you believe that it is engaging and the place you believe, it's not always so binary. So sometimes I do, you know, decline and take risks. I moved into a bigger studio in my building a few weeks ago because I outgrew the last one out of pure risk again, to kind of just command the place that the practice was in and that the work is moving towards and to see that there were certain steps that I found were really necessary to the development 
and the reception of certain bodies of work, some installations in particular, that the challenges were going to be so overwhelming if I continued to try to fit myself in this box that was smaller than it really was. So I decided to do it without necessarily, you know, the knowledge that in the long term it was going to be somehow secure, whatever that means. I just knew it was the time that I had to move forward. So that's the kind of approach I take to a lot of decisions in the studio and in my personal life. And I certainly look for a lot of guidance, but a lot of the times with that kind of tenacity, a lot of people are gonna say, well, but how are you gonna? And what are you gonna? And so I've learned over time not to listen to that so much. Yes, I feel like so much about having a studio practice is really learning to trust your gut and listen to yourself and and really be that decisive voice to make the right choices for yourself and where you want your work and your career to go. You know here at Beyond the Studio, we are big fans of working smarter, not harder, and creating systems that will help you grow your studio practice. That's why I am such a huge fan of Artwork Archive, the all-in-one platform that helps me run and organize my painting practice and career. If you don't have a personal inventory management system, or you've just been using PDFs and spreadsheets to keep track of all the work around your studio, then you need to start using Artwork Archive. Having a website is great for sharing my portfolio publicly, but I got to a point where I needed something on the back end to help me track and organize all of my work. The work that was outside my studio in exhibitions, on consignment, the work that sold five years ago or got donated to that art auction. Artwork Archive is great for all of this and allows me to pull income reports, track my contacts, and see changes over time to get a clearer picture of how my artistic practice is growing. I was surprised to realize that a majority of my sales one year were coming through a small handful of art advisories and that I really needed to cultivate those relationships. Now you can even send online invoices, accept digital payments for your work, and receive purchase requests directly from interested buyers. Using Artwork Archive is like having my own personal studio assistant and makes me feel so on top of my art career even when everything else feels like chaos. It is just a no-brainer. And Beyond the Studio listeners can get started using Artwork Archive for less than $5 a month by heading to www.artworkarchive.com slash beyond. I'm curious in these different sort of phases between your career, whether it's, you know, moving out of a day job and moving into a full-time studio practice or expanding your studio practice into a new space, Are these things that you sort of like follow your intuition or are you like very strategic with a plan of like, here's how much I need to be making in order to make these steps or here's how much, you know, success or I guess the the right response, like, is it strategy? Is it intuition? Is it some combination of the two? It's a balance of both. And I keep strict budgets. I've been doing that forever. I write down everything I spend, every transaction in categories, and I'll do them. That's changed over time. Now I do annual and quarterly projections um, on the studio, and I'll look at my previous or previous multiple uh, previous years' incomes and activity, and I'll 
tell my, you know, I'll kind of sit down and I'll say, well, this is the growth that I see realistic potential for for this year. And I'll make a couple of different versions of it. I'll pretty regularly reflect back on especially activity, like uh, if I did two residencies one year, two residencies the next one, I can start to continue, you know, on goals where it's like, well, do I Do I want to continue to do more of them? Do I want to do less of them and focus on something else? So I regularly check in. I would say at least every month I check in and I write it out in terms of where I am in the various goals that I set, whether it's quarterly, annual, or in, you know, three, five years, whatever. And those are things that I really had to learn over time. I learned that in coaching and fellowship programs that I've done with museums or something like this that aren't the kind of strategies or pragmatic approaches that are taught in studio art programs in you know, I only have an undergraduate degree so I can't speak to a graduate program but I certainly didn't learn those things in undergrad so those are things that I've learned over time and so I'll I'll take a practical and pragmatic approach for a long period of time until it kind of snaps. I grew out of my previous studio at least one year ago. So I've been pushing it yeah. for a year. So eventually then there are these spaces where emotion or intuition come in. It's a balance. I mean, at that point I'd already had working budgets for next year, this year reflecting on everything. So it wasn't that I had to necessarily sit down for a long time and reevaluate that when I came to make the decision. When I made the decision a month ago to take that leap, I just kind of did it. So it depends on the situation, but I certainly do have reflection, realistic writing and goal setting, financial goal setting especially and and planning as a you know backbone of my practice it's not my favorite part but i try to i try to keep it up regularly because i i know that if i don't it, it may give a real potential for things to seriously slip yeah i i feel like so much of the the studio practice is are these behind the scenes sort of number crunching, planning, strategizing, finding ways to either work with a space that doesn't quite work for your work or work with a budget that doesn't quite work for your work or work with time management that doesn't, you know, fit your needs or your schedule. And it's the extremely unglamorous side of it. And the part that I think a lot of times people don't want to talk about or care to talk about or even educationally like that, a lot of that information is not given to artists but it's so necessary because it takes up an enormous amount of our time away from creating the work just to get the practical parts of it together in order to make it and get it out there in the first place. I, can I address really quickly one more thing about financial Yes, planning talk and about anything and everything. So I think it's a really um, important thing that I wish that I had gotten more information on or at least more dialogue on earlier and when I was younger but I think that there's this myth out there especially with arts professionals that artists are somehow inherently financially illiterate or are somehow uh, they somehow you know fundamentally lack 
the skill set to manage their studio and practices appropriately and that therefore they need help. And I find that this myth and this attitude towards artists in that capacity really fosters an environment for exploitation. Yes. So it's, there's, you know, some real uh, serious benefit to engaging with those conversations and those ideas thoroughly with other artists that have gone through that and are really engaged in their practice. And it doesn't mean necessarily that you have somehow foundationally abandoned this this exclusively spiritual or artistic journey in life because you're seeking to make your practice sustainable. So these are really important things that I wish people would talk about more and that I certainly wish I'd had more access to as well because I really take a serious and kind of tough approach to that and I look for that in other artists and professionals uh, as well. You're totally right. There's definitely this messed up myth that artists don't know how to manage their money or really the non-art part of their lives when I feel like we have to be experts at it because so much of it is stuff that we have to teach ourselves and figure out how to manage out of sheer necessity. And these are conversations that we need to be having so candidly because I know, just speaking from my own personal experiences, I feel like I was extremely lucky to have had access to artists near near me that were figuring it out and they were willing to speak super candidly with me about it but not a lot of people are willing to do that maybe out of like vulnerability or or shame or fear or feeling like you're not doing it right or feeling like you might be doing it wrong but we really have had to figure out so many of these things for ourselves and therefore really can can do it yeah and to your point on that amanda i think the one of the biggest hurdles with that is through education Mm -hmm. these are talking points that are not necessarily a part of not only secondary education, say you're in a studio art program, but primary education as well. So, you know, it's I I think that there's really ample room for that to grow. Yeah, I appreciated what you mentioned earlier, uh, which is just this kind of, um, you know, part of that myth that the merging of these or acknowledgement of, you know, these other aspects of our work and life is somehow um, going to taint the the studio work or, you know, how it's perceived or, you know, any kind of engagement with the um, anything that could be perceived as, you know, being connected to capitalism is really, you know, uh, just kind of like muddying the the interpretation of the work and I I can understand that and that you know relationship that many artists have to to talking about you know finances but I really I love what you pointed out which is just that you know actually this is a form of reclaiming power and agency over our own work and lives and this kind of you know cliche that knowledge is power is really (laughs) true here in that you know being able to to make decisions um, that are going to, you know, impact your ability to lead a sustainable life is is an extremely powerful thing. And so really kind of embracing that aspect of it is, um, 
you know, for, for artists, such an important thing to do. Um, so we really appreciate hearing that and, um, and completely agree. It's something that, you know, we would want to see more of within um, every level in the educational system as well. Yeah, I, f- I feel in many ways this conversation goes back to an imperialist construction of art mm-hmm. history and, and canon through this understanding of you know, moral superiority or purity. That's what mm-hmm. the arts and especially fine arts, the lens in which they're primarily looked, you know, viewed through. So there's a lot of smoke and mirrors and the way in which those myths work for a colonial or imperial kind of lead is that it, you know, creates systems and technologies of power to wield over others. And so to continue to be working off of these myths and understandings today in the art world, it tends to manifest as this circle of kind of uh, exploitation. And of course, we've seen it a lot with conversations around ethics and equity in public institutions over the years, but especially this year. And in talking about equity and ethics and, you know, financial literacy or agency, you know, what does a new approach to those things for artists look like? Probably different for a lot of people, but important to understand. Yeah, Nicole and I had just recorded an interview a couple days ago with someone and we were talking about how because of this year, we're now having these conversations on a huge scale about, we'll use examples of, you know, defunding police, decentralizing these institutions, decolonizing them, and, you know, dismantling these extremely problematic structures, how can we take many of these concepts and apply them into the art world? Because they're seated with the same issues. And these are obviously also issues that I feel like are discussed in your work as well, like being really candid about the, I don't know, I guess (laughs) what you, the the smoke and mirror example is really perfect, just sort of, that's not like a complete question, (laughs) but I appreciate having this conversation I guess now because we are in this wild year we're able to speak it about it more candidly or or more openly or at least more people are aware of what we're talking about yeah I mean it's so many considerations and so many questions and perspectives and vantage points it's does it look like abolishing institutions and systems and creating new ones from the ground up? Does it look like altering those systems and institutions from within over in- incremental progress? Does it, you know, and on and on. And, and so I don't think of a specific way in which that looks to be correct. And to your point, my work does engage with a lot of those topics engage with museology, colonialism, through and construction of identity, or let's say gender, through aesthetic technologies. In other words, needlework or tapestry or textile work from a specific period and rearranging the visual elements of those materials 
into a contemporary conversation. And so in many ways, the way that my work can kind of confront those conversations is kind of this inside out way. I mean, I work with institutions. I work with these museums and exhibit with them. I work with galleries. I work with nonprofits. So, you know, that's been a way that my work functions to engage in those kinds of rigorous conversations and to hopefully affect change. But there are a lot of ways of approaching that. And in some ways, there's also this decision eventually of, well, what is the way in which I'm going to choose today to move forward? And sometimes there's internal conflict for me as a fine artist or a visual artist in, is that worthwhile? Is that effective? And I can go back and forth sometimes, but yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask about how your navigating through 2020 and how it's possibly impacted your work or maybe the the things that you're thinking about and, and asking yourself or, or how you're sort of adapting with your career um, or expectations, any of it? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's been a roller coaster. I, um, I had a lot of things canceled in the beginning of this year, a lot of things postponed six, nine, 12 months. Uh, so certainly my practice was affected by those things. I decided in March to really double down. I think already this year I applied for 15 emergency grants and then another 30 grants, residency, fellowship opportunities since March and I kind of doubled down on engaging with institutions and spaces and people that I already had really good relationships with so if they were doing visiting artist talks or studio visits um, I just did them I did uh, visiting lectures at some classes I just tried to stay as focused and engaged as I could, and I've been able to keep my head above water, which is really as much as I've been hoping to do, which I think is a big, I had to change my goals. My, I had like a one, I had a thing for 2020 goals written out, and I just crossed it out and I wrote 2021. And then I wrote like a super short list of goals for 2020, which was like, mm-hmm. don't move out of New York City stay in your studio building, make X amount of money, like much lower than the original goal. And like, that was, that was it um, for professional stuff. So, which at the time seemed to be pretty big things. As I saw everybody moving, leaving their studio, going to the suburbs, going back home, not making work or all kinds of things. So I've just tried really hard to stay focused and how that's looked over the last few months is I'm in the studio all the time, 
I decided to move into a larger space to pursue, to push the work into a new direction. That approach came from just a long-standing desire to do that. I'd been looking to do that for the last year anyway, but it especially made sense now as things are getting canceled and it's harder to connect and it's harder to get things out there. I figured it was the right time to really push to another level and another place with the work. Otherwise, I worried I would just be stifling what I had been working so hard on for the last three, four years or whatever. So everything is work. That's the other thing. (laughs) Everything is work. Everything is work all the time right now, which is not a complaint, but that's the way that it looks today. Yeah, I really appreciate you talking about that. I know Nicole and I, uh, we do kind of like a goal setting at the beginning of the year, like what do we want to do with the podcast? Where do we want to take it? And on our list was like in-person opportunities. Like maybe we do a little like get together with listeners or maybe we try to do talks and it was just a like, oh, LOL, I guess we'll just cross that out. And same thing with my own personal goals. I I definitely had a lot of lists of, I do some more um, maker end of, of the art. And I was like, I'm going to do all of these markets. And I, I think I did one in the very beginning of March. And I was like, I guess these like 12 slots I opened up for myself, I'll just, that's 2021. That's, that's the next year's goal. And now I'm like, is that a 2022 goal? I don't even know. I feel like I've been having a lot of conversations with people lately about just the recalibration of everything that's happening, Um, you know, recalibrating our our own expectations for the year, for ourselves, which, I mean, one thing that has also been difficult, and maybe, maybe other artists can relate to this because, you know, we are... We have to be so self-motivated and proactive and, you know, constantly working towards pushing our work forward. And so I think that kind of level of, um, you know, productivity, that kind of expectation we have for ourselves or our work being really, um, you know, halted or, or just like completely derailed um, for some in, in many ways just has has been really hard emotionally to to recalibrate um you know i can i identify with that at least and so those goals that you mentioned just like staying in your studio space just you know keeping a roof over your head it sounds so foundational but i mean those are really accomplishments this year truly and so i think just really kind of like shifting our own perceptions around what's you know what does success look like for us this year has been a process but I know that's something we're we're still doing even. You know, I was just talking yesterday about this and having to again sort of like re yeah, recalibrate expectations um related to work and it's hard to do that, um, but it is ongoing. What was especially challenging regarding that process of evaluation in the beginning of the pandemic in March and in April was this idea of relevancy <clears throat> with what was realistically happening, especially here in, in New York, which saw, you know, such significant strain on hospitals. And um, I mean, it was really, anyway, it seemed very selfish and really daunting to think about professional 
goals as a practicing artist. Um, and, and it seemed really challenging to address those things given the reality and the scope of what was happening. So, you know, there's definitely periods of fluctuation over time. I mean, there was in April and May, I made a lot of new work, a new series. But then in June and July, I couldn't do anything. And then in August, I had a commission. And so I tacked on some other new work that I used with some money from the commission. And then in September, I couldn't do anything. And so it kind of went like up and down like that. And anytime I was like, I, I questioned the relevancy or the importance of my work or sustaining myself or my practice, you know, I'd just be constantly applying for things so that I at least had money to meet my basic needs and then connect with um, people in, in my community as regularly as possible. So it's been this just like, it, it's, and that part has never really gone away. It comes back and then it kind of, it really goes up and down a lot too, especially now with what's happening. Yeah, so much now is about survival and it really is very different month to month. I mean, I know there were months where I was on unemployment and there were months where I was like, oh, I can, I can like take care of, of my household and like I can, I can fund us. And there are months where I'm like, I don't even, I can't even look at art. I can't even think about it. It's too exhausting and I'm too overwhelmed and struggling to even think creatively. And as artists, so much of it is our identity and, and ourselves because we pour so much of ourselves into our work and if we're these empty cups what what can we do and this year is really draining yeah well art and performing arts and uh, are always the first things to go in an you know economic crisis which is the kind of flip side of the health crisis right now so um it's really a kind of it's really a kind of test um, and strain. So, but then there's this other side where, you know, artists and their work are paramount to understanding so many things and engaging with each other and community. So it can seem really selfish to want to maintain your practice and not lose your studio or not really stop working and in the face of a lot of awful crises, but it's also really important to do. Yeah, and I see so many artists being the ones that are helping to spread information now and and being the activists and, and being the ones to help create the visuals for spreading information. And I, it's so important and, and art is often one of the first things that's cut or forgotten, but it is absolutely not cut or forgotten in the way that people spend their time or consume knowledge and information like it's still so necessary and we're trying to figure out how to how to do it i guess i don't want to end on like a completely heavy heavy note 
do you have any, uh, sorry, this is such a segue. Do you have any experiences uh, or advice that you've been given or would give or learning experiences that you would want to share or want to recommend um, or anything that we haven't covered thus far that you want to make sure to talk about? Well, I would say one of the most important pieces of advice that I was ever given by another friend of mine who's an artist was very simple advice, which was to make the time for it and dedicate the time to it because no one else will be responsible for it or check in to make sure that you do it. So it's very simple, but it it's a very poignant approach to thinking about things in times of challenge. Like when I'm dealing with a grant application for the production of some installation and I've got 10 essay questions and it's such a challenge and I've procrastinated or I'm, I'm having a, a difficult time approaching the timeline or the budget or I'm in... Uh, the face of, you know, piles of rejection letters or cancellations. It's really an important and simple thing that I always think about and remember. So regardless of those facts, I'll schedule the time and I'll show up for that time. And that's been really, that's been really important to me over the years that kind of just dedication and consistency regardless of whether I feel confident in it or not it's that this understanding that the alternative to disengage with my practice or to engage with it without everything that I can give to it is potentially losing it and so the challenge or uncomfortability or whatever that may be is for a few days or a few weeks or a month or a year like this year is so much more worth it than the alternative i think that's so important for for us all to hear just to remember that, you know, our, our work is a priority and, you know, we're the only ones that will be able to carve out that time for it. So thank you. Thank you, Max, for all of your words of wisdom and just sharing your, your insights into this year and your work in life. And, um, I feel very inspired by you and, um, what you've shared. So really appreciate you taking the time. That's great to hear. Thank you for having me. And for listeners that are not familiar with your work, where can we direct them to find you and support you? The easiest way is through my website, which is maxcolby.com. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. I think Nicole froze. I think so, too. Nicole, you froze for a minute. Oh, can you hear me? Also, maybe I'm on like a 20-second delay. 
I can't tell how no, delayed. No, I can hear you. Hello, hello. I think you were oh, pretty no. delayed, but maybe if Let you me mute or turn off your camera. I'll be right back. Oh, yeah. Oh, internet.